Hello and welcome to Museopunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. I'm Ed Rodley. And I'm Suze Anderson. And together, we'll be digging into another important issue driving conversation and practice in our field, decolonization. Now, this is a topic we've actually covered on Museopunks before. Back in episode 26, I spoke with Cinnamon Catlin Legutko about the work of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine, which has had decolonization as part of its strategic plan and its work for several years now. I'm going to pop a link to that episode in the show notes for those who want to know more about that work to see how some of these ideas play out in practice. But today we wanted to complicate the discussion a little more. That's right. In recent years, decolonization has started to move from peripheral discussions within the sector to more mainstream conversation. It's even listed as one of the topic suggestions for AAM's 2020 conference. But there are legitimate concerns that the practice is being co-opted by museums as a way to reinforce their power rather than as a practice to dismantle it. Absolutely. In many ways, decolonization seems to still center the colonizer. Right, right. We've both also been interested in a concept that we encountered through the work of Puawai Cairns, a Maori curator from the National Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarewa, whose recent essay about the distinction between decolonization and indigenization, or in their context, remaurification, uh, has offered us some, some language and some different insights into thinking about the subject more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. And we've also been really influenced by the work of a few other thinkers, two of whom we're going to speak with today, Zemeya Kasim and Nathan Woodye-Sentence. So let's get into it. Zemeya Kasim is a writer and researcher best known for her essay, The Museum Will Not Be Decolonized, which chronicled her experience working on an exhibition with Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery as a co-curator. Her recent article, The Museum is the Master's House, an open response to Tristram Hunt, challenged the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum to question his assumptions about what it means to live in colonial aftermaths. Zemeya... Welcome to Museo Punks. Hi, it's great to be here. It's so lovely to have you here. Ed and I have both been big fans of your work and have uh, found The Museum Will Not Be Decolonized a really influential essay for both of us. Thank you. So you wrote that essay following your experience, as you mentioned, as a co-curator at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery's exhibition, The Past Is Now. Can you give us a little bit of context for where that article came from and tell us a little bit about that exhibition and your experience? Um, yeah, that's, that's quite a big question because, I mean, a lot of people I think always think that I want to start by just starting with the exhibition itself and the co-curation process. But um, I like to say that, you know, I have lived in the UK my whole life. You know, this is where I was born. And in a sense, most of my interactions with memory institutions in particular, so museums, but also art galleries, um, a lot of those things went into that piece in a way. And like, I think that one of the reasons that piece um, resonated with so many people is because um, it got at the fact that this wasn't really an exceptional thing that happened and mm. that it, in fact it could actually be the rule because I think 
we're reaching this stage, particularly because of social media, I think, where people have a kind of language to talk about those kinds of experiences where you have these kind of unequal power relations going on. And museums are these performative spaces where these things kind of, they're not only happening in real time, but that you have these resources that are making them happen. So I think, you know, I, I, yeah, so I think it's important to sort of say that, that my, you know, my education, primary school, secondary school, but also just as somebody who is raced and someone who's visibly Muslim interacting with these institutions, it's sort of like that's all kind of part of that piece in a way. Um, so when I went into, um, Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, um, I was invited by, um, Sheen Kazmani, who is an uh, Islamic artist, and she was approached by um, Sarah Wajid, who is, I think she works at a Museum of London now. And um, it was part of a programme called Changemakers that was meant to sort of highlight the work of people who might not have been, um, how can I put this, who who sort of been overlooked. So Sarah Wajid has been working for many years in, in the museum sector, but has kind of been overlooked. And so we were, me and um, five other people, most of all of them who were women of color, um, were kind of asked to come in and, um, yeah, and, and kind of do a project. And the project was totally wide open. So it was very, and it, we had a very short amount of time to do this kind of totally wide open project to look at the um, collections and kind of make a, and make some kind of a story, I suppose, about what our interpretation of what um, decolonial meant, I guess. So, yeah. It, it's really interesting to hear that, I, you know, these kinds of interventions have, I think, become seen as being a way forward for a lot of institutions. And the way you're describing it, there's clearly some real challenges and we'll get into them a little bit further in this discussion mm. out of that experience what prompted you to then write about it and write that the museum will not be decolonized what prompted me i mean for me um i you know i'm a fiction writer and an essayist and, and for me it's like I, I that's just what i do you know it's it's like a it's like a if something happens, I have to put it in on paper. Otherwise, I don't really understand what's happened, if that makes sense. That's why I want to put words to an experience. But I, with that, the specific challenge with that um, article and, and with the whole experience was the fact that there were so many different voices. So all of the women of colour, um, four of whom I'm pr- relatively close to, you know, there was just a, you know, we, it was, it was very much capturing our conversations and our emotions and the things that we were going through in the moment. And, and I also kind of wanted to take a bit, a back a bit of control and take a back a bit of, you know, I wanted to cause a bit of, you know, to, to reflect the actual experiences I experienced it. And, and I think I was very, um, aware that this was being seen as a kind of progress for the museum and progress for the nation and I was very resistant to that and and I felt like it made more sense to give a more a fuller perhaps truer picture so yeah that's why and and I when I wrote it I I cried Um, and like when when I published I thought oh my god I've ruined everything everyone's gonna hate me I was I was totally um people like are so nice about that article now but when I when I wrote it I did not I got the sense that I that um I was doing making a massive mistake if I'm honest with you (laughs) that's really upsetting no 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 not at not at all come on like it's this is all part of being human so yeah no it's it's fine yeah uh 
I think Ed and I have both written things that, well, I certainly have in the past that I've gone, <gasps> yeah. this, am I allowed to say this? Yeah, but that's the thing. Those are the things that you have to write. Like, that's what I've realised now. When you get, when you're not even sure you should be doing it, that is when you have to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the minute after I hit the send button on anything important that I think like, oh, I just ended my <laughs> yeah, exactly. career. Oh, well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Maya, decolonization strategies. Like, I, I can, one of the reasons I resonate so much with um the museum will not be decolonized as you can clearly see the extent to which the organization is trying to do the right thing. And yet at the same time, um, the actual lived experience of trying to work differently winds up being a lot messier. Many of the people I know that are critical of institutional decolonization strategies raise concerns about the practice being co-opted, right, as a way for the museum to basically reinforce the existing voice of the institution rather than challenging the entrenched systems. Uh, so uh, my question to you is, do you think that decolonization itself is a, a colonialist enterprise in some way? Like, is decolonization even... Uh, even a thing that we should be working towards? Um, is decolonization even possible? Okay. I feel like uh, one of the con most kind of controversial things that people get annoyed with me about is because I often say that I think decolonization is impossible. And one of the reasons I often say this is, per you know, I believe it first, but I also think it's a really interesting way to kind of get people to be honest about what they think decolonization really is and like really for them to people to reveal themselves um and sort of ex and sort of what hopes they're pinning on this word and and one of the things i've been become very interested in is watching how this word has entered institutional spaces art spaces um and i am very very ambivalent about um its ubiquity and i'm very ambivalent about how it's being used on the one hand, um, you know, I, or firstly, you know, I think that we live in a colonial moment. Colonial, co colonialism has never ended. And that is something that we are constantly being taught to, to look away from. And we're trained by the media to look away from. And, you know, the thing that is really difficult is that when you are, especially, you know, I live in a, um, in the UK, um, but I know this is the case in the US for certain people as well. You're, you, you, it's almost like you're living amongst people who are living in a completely different world to you. And I think that, I think that the problem is, is that people are coming at this, um, from different positions, but are pretending that those differences don't exist. So I live in a, in a quote unquote colonial center, but the issues that I think may be important in, in terms of decolonizing are gonna be completely different than, than an indigenous person living on Turtle Island, right? And I think that my, what my belief is that we need to hold on to the idea that we cannot contain that all this pain and all this trauma, we must hold on to that and, and think about how we haven't even grieved, you know, we haven't given people place and time to grieve. And we haven't really figured out how to live together properly or like really understood how we can do this together. And so the fact that this word has entered, uh, you know, our culture and has become so popular 
to me, it represents this sense, you know, people use the word hope, but for me, that's like a, a point in the future. But for me, it's like, what about the present moment? What about right this second and all the things and all the tragedies that happen because one one group of people think they're more superior than the other. And for me, it's very much about holding on to the impossibility as something that we must really face together, that we can't do this. And like, then what do we do if we can't do this? How do we, you know, what's the exit strategy then? And and that's that to me is my my preferred way of going about things, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Um, one of the things that I, I've often reacted to when I listen to colleagues talk about decolonization work is that it it often sounds like it can be done without involving any indigenous voices at all. It's just something that well-meaning white people need to do better um, and without actually having any conversations outside of the normal realms in which conversations happen in the field. Totally. And and this issue with progress, like, you know, this issue, because the thing is, if we think about museums, they are, you know, they're, they're, there are evaluations, you know, there are targets to be hit. And, and I understand that. But that's, to me, is, is kind of opposing to what something like decolonizing or like the word decolonizing could represent. Yeah, one of the one of the more interesting things I read recently um, was a piece by Poi Cairns, uh, who's a Maori curator at Te Papa Tangaroa, the National Museum in New Zealand, where she was talking about, uh, for her, the importance of the distinction between decolonization and what she called remaurification or indigenization, mm-hmm. and how they're not the same thing, uh, which hadn't really, you know, sometimes you read things and suddenly the world makes sense differently than it did before you read them. Like, I had one of those moments of like, oh, yeah. Um, do you think there is a, an important difference in where the centering of voices happens in decolonization versus indigenization? Okay, um, I'm going to answer this in, in as much as I can because I do not consider myself an expert. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll give you like my my kind of thoughts about it in, t- in terms of um, people in the UK. In the UK, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have varying different, um, you know, migrant communities and people that have been with generations who are black, people of colour. And and I think that what's very interesting for me about these conversations to do with decoloniality is that it becomes very much about who can get the most resources from, you know, from institutions in terms of, um, you know, in terms of who can, you know, who can be the voice of authenticity. Yeah. And and I think that there is a huge, you know, there's always been this huge divide in terms of those who have been left behind back home, those who exist in, in indigenous space and diasporic, quote unquote, diasporic voices. There is a lot of tension there. There is a huge amount of tension between groups here. And it's really, and that's, you know, one of the things that just in my own life that I try and think about is just that we're all trying to talk to one another um, but the backdrop is white supremacy. So to me, it's like the question of who, whose voice is centered. Well, we're all t- trying to talk to one another, but our, you know, our imaginations are entirely different. The language we speak, you know, in our own minds, the stories that we bring to the table are entirely different. So like, for example, um, I actually spoke to a researcher who researched The Past Is Now, the exhibition at uh, Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And 
they talked about how they spoke to um, different people and their impressions of the exhibition. And he, and he was very struck by how all the white people he spoke to um, didn't understand the room and they, they saw it as just another room in the museum and they really couldn't engage with it except to kind of use words like multiculturalism or diversity. And they just didn't have a language to even think about it. And that's really important, right? Like we're not even that. So again, when I say decolonizing is impossible, when we think about the public, like, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people like you guys who, you know, read lots of books and stuff like that. This is not patronizing to the public. This is this is an indictment to, not only to our education system, but the way that museums, their, their funding is being cut and the way that our libraries are shutting. There are no places where people can truly um, come together, like free places where people can come together and, and actually speak to one another that isn't based on like some kind of like ex- like a financial transaction essentially and that's so I think this issue of like okay centering a voice but what but what are the structures that need to happen for the voices you want to hear to be heard if that makes sense like it's a deep issue yeah, <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So speaking of thinking about whose voice gets heard and whose voice doesn't, you and I actually started (laughs) corresponding initially on Twitter. Uh, Before I reached out about this piece, um, you were writing a response to a piece by V&A director Tristram Hunt, which asked whether museums should return their colonial artefacts. And Hunt was arguing against decolonization practices and in particular restitution of objects, suggesting that decolonization is decontextualizing, that decolonization activism has an agenda, and that museum objects can live beyond or outside cultural and ethnic identities, I think was the term he used. Why did you feel the need to respond to this piece so directly? Oh, God. Yeah. Um, right, well, let's just get into it. Um, it, has, it, hasn't, it hasn't been serious enough. Um, right, well, I think... Okay, firstly, I question myself. I really do. Um, I, and I question myself even to this day because last month was really just a very hard month on me for all kinds of reasons. But like... The issue, the thing with that, the, the, I mean, I read it. I read about. I'll, I'll be honest. I read about um, three or four paragraphs, and I got bored, and I didn't finish it. And then um, I got a text from my friend, um, and she texted me going, "Oh my god, he quoted you, and he quoted you in service of his argument." And so huh. I rushed back to the to the um, article, and I read the whole thing, and I was just really, I just was perplexed because I felt that the first half kind of almost seemed, you know, to be not praising decoloniality but it just seemed like a quite a comprehensive literature review of it or and and then the second half sort of came out of nowhere and seemed to just pretend that the, I don't know if, does that kind of resonate with what, what you what, how your impressions of it yeah absolutely mm-hmm. I'm, uh, <laughs> it it was quite interesting sort of like you I started the piece and then I left the piece and then I actually came back I I I came back to read it because it you know I I first read it in the car and I was like oh this is not the time to be paying attention to to what's being said here Mm. and in a similar way I felt um quite uncomfortable with a lot of the argument Mm. and I was interested 
to see the ways that different voices were being used and being, I think, co-opted into the argument. And I think that's that's some of what you're responding to. As you say, your argument was sort of being used um, yeah. within, within yeah. that context in a way that felt quite um, challenging and yeah. not, not what you were trying to get to. No, no. And I, that's the, this is the thing. I mean, why I responded, I, I mean, I, I think that, they're, you know, they're, in a way, I don't know if it was the right thing to do. Like, I need to be upfront mm-hmm. about that. Because I think that on one hand, this should, you know, I don't think that um, Tristam's article should be taken seriously. And on the other hand, I think it should be t- taken very, very seriously. And I think that that's a very difficult thing to say. Like, on the one hand, I you know, I don't think that what he's saying is genuous, right? I don't think that he means what he's saying. I think that he's got a, a job, you know, and on some level I kind of pity him, but like, I, you know, he's got a job to do and that's that's to protect the VNA um, from what he perceives as, as a threat. And then on the other hand, I take it very, very, very seriously because, you know, if I'm honest with you, I've had... Tristan Hunt sort of at my periphery for quite a long time because of some of the things that he said that have made me feel very um, uncomfortable and I think particularly the the use of word the word cosmopolitanism which I've always had issues with because it's a word that disappears class it's a word that disappears race um, in very um, kind of problematic ways and so I've just always sort of had this issue and then when this article came out I felt very much like I think I kind of have to write something because you know even though a lot of people were kind of annoyed with it I feel like it was quite hard to understand why it was annoying or why mm-hmm. it was difficult and I, and I realized then that it was the very tone and it was it was the very the the, the fact that it wasn't being uh, it wasn't directly being said you know all of the 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 actual contestation of what does history mean he wasn't coming out and and sort of saying it and that is the problem if he came out and actually said this is what I think and this is what the VNA stands for then there's something that we can have an argument about it can be a productive conversation but if you're going to be underhanded how can we actually like have some kind of a you know so have a proper public conversation about this if that makes sense Yeah, it does make sense. And I think one of the things uh, that I found really interesting, you know, one of the parts of the argument was that decolonization is, in in Hans' vocabulary, decontextualizing. Um, But that's quite interesting because arguably museum objects are are decontextualized by going into the museum altogether and arguably decolonization has the potential to recontextualize objects, to reconnect them to layers of meaning that have been stripped away and, and that often that meaning is sort of stripped away without the participation or the consent of the object's owners or creators. So for me, you know, one of the things that I really took from your response was that the point of decolonization in in however we understand it, knowing that this term is sort of thrown around and used quite differently, isn't about going backward, but about going forward with rights and with agency and with dignity restored to the culture of origin. Is that is that part of what you're trying to get to in the way you unpack this yes 100 percent. and i think because the thing is it's, it's interesting you say museums are decontextualizing because they they are but they also stand testament to the to the history of colonization and i and i really i get quite frustrated when people talk about a kind of return return to what 
This is all we've known. And, you know, and, and this and the idea of return to me, it feels a lot like whiteness because it's all about this space that's on the outside, a good place. And we, you know, we're humans, we are messy and we need to deal with the mess. And, and for me, the way that we think about that is, okay, we've got this, this, this history that is being erased even as we you know, even as we speak, it's, it's just, it's, we're, we're constantly erasing the power structures that our whole lives, everything is based upon. But it's like, okay, what are we going to do with that? And like, how do, how do we give rise to the power structures? Okay. So that's why I wrote, to be honest, that is why I wrote the article. We need to, to make it clear what is actually going on. What is, what power is at play there? But yeah, the future, right? Like, how do we walk together with this? So, you know, in, in that article, I use the example of being Muslim, which is my experience in, Lon- in, in London, in Birmingham as well. And, you know, the sad fact is, you know, most people in, in um, England, they don't, they don't know, actually, they actually don't know what, how can I put this? They don't see what I see. Okay, they don't see that um, the fact that people do live together. I wouldn't use the word harmoniously or peacefully, but you know, people live together. And you know, when I moved to Birmingham a few years ago, you know, Birmingham as a city, the second biggest city in the UK, has taught me so much about what you know what it means to love one another and, and be together, in spite of institutions. Right? Like you know, we act like institutions are the place that culture happens, and they're so so important. But I believe our lives are really important, and I believe that's where culture actually happens. And it just so happens that museums sort of collect a few bits and bobs of it. And and I, I find it really very challenging and difficult because it's like I walk through the park and people are like having picnics and there are black people, there are Muslims, there are South Asian people, there are black Muslims. It's just like very it's very normal and that and that is England that is the UK and we need to you know for me it's like in terms of how the way that um, discourse is used as, as, a, as a weapon violently telling people that what you're seeing before your eyes isn't real that people aren't human we it's 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 very difficult because again people don't have a vocabulary in which to kind of divest themselves from the ideals that their leaders are giving them yeah that's that's basically my rant <laughs> That was a good one, though. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so one thing I'm interested in, Sumaya, is um, when you were working on the past as now, you were sort of an external provocateur, right? You were you were inside the organization, but outside the organization and expected mm-hmm. to sort of intervene within it. And particularly for institutions that are that are interested in trying to engage with this work seriously, do you think that that is an effective way for museums to try to go about doing things differently um what what if not if not this then then what is the way forward okay um yeah i think i think of course it is important to involve people um who are not uh, white and who and who have a kind of stake in it in terms of their heritage and so on um i think for for me i think about um museums I think about like words like grief and I think about words like healing and I, I think about whether those kinds of things can happen in museums and I think about why it, I find it hard to imagine because when you when you are brought in as an external person who who is of colour, is black, um, that could 
it's i don't know i just think that the problem is is that um i think that museums assume that they have agency right they think they have agency and i don't know if they do and i don't know if white people do you know i don't know if if um that kind of we you know people have the ability to transcend their contexts in that way and 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 that's difficult to say because at the same time I do very strongly believe in in everyone having agency but it's like if you're going to take other people's agency away from them that means you will not have agency right and that's the reality we live in and it's about getting people to understand that it's not that I'm complaining and that I and you know I'm you know I'm complaining because I don't have agency in a way I'm making that complaint for you as well you're stuck in this as well so for me it's much more a question about like what does liberation look like for all of us and yeah and and thinking about um you know really difficult questions like you know I spoke about in the Tristan Hunt article which is you know if you're attached to an idea like secularism what do you do with people who believe in god right like how do you navigate that because that's a very emotional subject yeah. and and you know what do you do and it, yeah and i think that's you, you can't turn away from the difficulty that's what i believe we cannot turn away from difficulty and one of the things that i think is very insidious is to tell people that their emotions are the problem because the emotions is where the transformation is and that's the reason that so many people in the media go, oh, you know, facts, not feelings. And, and, you know, we need to be factual about it because they're trying to turn us against ourselves. Like they're trying to make the most important part of what it is to be human, the, the, the enemy. And so I think that until we really start to understand that, that, you know, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. And obviously we need to remunerate people adequately. That's another thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that we, yeah, yeah, but I think that even though it's hard, let's. I think it's just about having an authentic conversation and and, I, and having a degree of authenticity and being there in in your totality. I suppose. I don't know, but yeah, it's, that's a hard question. Like to be honest, I don't know. Well, it's interesting that um, you bring up the idea of emotion because it, the emotional labor of people who are engaged in this kind of work is a thing that seems to come up all the time, and your your notion that this is work that everyone is doing rather than uh, it being passed off generally to people of color or other underrepresented audiences as this is your work to do. Um, you know, we, we're seeing lots and lots of people talking about the idea that the burden of being of being tokenized and having to do emotional labor so that other people don't do emotional labor is is a real a real problem at the moment i would say in the field yeah i think i think that when you're brought into a context where you where there is a kind of exchange of capital in the end of the day the 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 emotion yeah the emotional labor becomes you know becomes a huge issue but it's like i i I think about okay let's just leave race out of it and just be a woman and you you know you you you're you know you're expected to put you're expected to put so you know, you're expected to be the one that feels and you're expected to do certain things like make the tea etc but then it's like when you add race to it and you add you know your sexuality and all the things that make it so uncomfortable to be in these institutional spaces it, it, it's it's you know the thing is it's traumatizing and the, the problem is, is that we think about racism as a kind of facet of like, yeah, it, you know, it upsets people. But racism is associated with fatality. Racism is associated with 
um, chronic health conditions and mental health issues? And where is the space for things like therapy? Where is the space for things like be- being healed and your communities, you know, being kind of bolstered by these these things? So you're being brought in, but it's like you're being brought in for that one specific thing. But it's like I'm not. A, I'm not just one thing, you know, I'm bringing with me not only, you know, I've got a country on my back to quote Gloria, Gloria and Lucia. So, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not just, it's very much a, a very, yeah, you've got weight, you've got a huge weight on you. And and the thing that I that I find difficult is more that people don't understand that because they their version of racism is, is like, you know, I'm a good person because I don't view you differently for what you are. That's not what racism is. Yeah, I think that's really important and really powerful. I've been thinking the last couple of years a lot more about um, risks and the risks that we ask people to take and the traumas that we ask people to undergo uh, to, to achieve things. And they can be important things and meaningful things, but it doesn't mean that they're coming without a cost. So yeah, one of the things I just... I, I'm certainly aware that um, even in this conversation, you've got some white people framing the way the discussion goes. And I wanted to see whether there was anything before we finish that you think is really important to get across or that you'd like to discuss that we haven't uh, put as one of the topics for discussion or that we haven't thought of. Yes, please. Um, okay. Um, like, well, thank you. Um, I think... I think that um, one of the things that um, has come out of this is that a lot of people, I mean, you know, I didn't say at the start, but, you know, I am viewed as a kind of insider, outsider figure. And I value that very much because a lot of people, especially um, young people working in museums, but especially young women of colour, have come to me and given me their stories um, of bullying and the microaggressions that go on. And I just really don't want those people to feel alone. And... I really want to emphasize that you know we you know a lot of places are peddling hope and I just think that people need to recognize that the hope is with them and that they are the ones who matter and the importance of rest and you know you you you're out there trying to change the world but sometimes you you know a museum isn't the place to do that and that's okay you know it's okay to go home and change the world by looking after yourself and yeah that's pretty much it so, Samaya, if people are interested in finding out more about the work that you're doing or want to get in contact, how can they do so? Um, on Twitter. So that's um, and I, I think my email address is in my bio. So it's at um, S-F-K-A-S-S for sugar. I am for mother. Yeah. So yeah, that's the best way. Cool. Thank you very much. No worries. That's brilliant. Samaya, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It has been really, really lovely. No worries. Thank you very much. And also, I'm honoured that Nathan is going to be the next guest. (laughs) (laughs) So are we. Nathan Mudia-Sentence is a Wiradjuri man from the Mogi clan who grew up on Darkingen country, New South Wales. Nathan works to ensure that First Nations stories being told in cultural and memory institutions, such as libraries, archives, and museums, are being told and controlled by First Nations people. Nathan talks about critical librarianship and critical museology from a First Nations perspective on his blog, The Archival Decolonist, and today, we're very happy to have Nathan talk to us. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? (laughs) Very good. How are you? 
Doing very well, thanks. So Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about um, what your job at the Australian Museum looks like these days? So what I mostly do is First Nations programs, so lectures, tours, workshops, events. But really what I believe my role is doing is facilitating First Nations voices in the Australian Museum. The Australian Museum is around 192 years old. It's the got the second largest Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander cultural collection in the world. But for a long period of that time, First Nations stories have been told by other people and that's created different narratives and, um, you know, has not given First Nations agency and has sort of distorted what First Nations culture is. So, um, so what I try to believe my role really is, is just facilitating First Nations people into the space so we can tell our own stories from our own perspectives, because for a long time, those perspectives have been missing from that museum space. Great. Yeah, I know you've written previously about your work to, quote, dismantle the colonial gaze that cultural and memory institutions have, were built on. Mm. Um, and at the moment, at this particular moment in time, there's a lot of discussion about decolonization in the museum sector, but it, it still appears to center that colonial gaze. And one mm. of the questions that Susan and I have been asking people is, is decolonization even the right framing for this work? Or should we be thinking and talking more about indigenization? Or do those ideas need to need to work together somehow? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I use the term decolonizing a lot, even though I'm not well versed in decolonial theory. Um, but I have heard, you know, indigenizing, remarification of spaces. A lot of people have been talking about that. And there is the, the argument to be asked, can, and I know a lot of people have been asking it, can places like museums and archives actually be decolonized as colonial institutions? Um, but mm. what I what I really try to do is mostly disrupt the colonial status quo. Um, and I believe that in my own way is decolonizing, just trying to disrupt this, um, as you're saying, the colonial gaze. So just even this week I was doing tours and we have this wall of shields at the museum. And I basically explain that it's basically because of taxonomy, we've put all the shields together, but they're from about 40 different, Aboriginal communities um, and they're just all called shields once they enter the museum and shield has uh, a meaning attached to it then. So like, so it actually sort of those things when they come into the museum, get a new meaning attached to them that they may not previously had. And it also disrupts the meaning that they used to have. So um, just calling a shield, a shield, um, you know, people think of it as something to defend themselves with. Um, we're in like Riadri language. Um, we have at least six words for shield that I know of. And one of those words is like gear and which gear means like wind and gear gear means like be well, be happy. So that, that word for shield would probably either be connected to the wind or about being celebratory and happy and being healthy. So those things aren't really defensive, but once they come into the museum and become shields, that's what they end up becoming. And so that's the narrative that's attached to them. And same with the colonial gaze doesn't just um, impose meaning it, and create meaning. It also shapes museum collections. So um, the Australian Museum, for example, has the second largest Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander collection in the world, but it has a predominantly male-focused collection. And we know from a fact, huh. working, working with a lot of... Um, you know, working with our communities, knowing what we're knowing our culture, we know that 
most communities are very gender balanced and there's a lot of um in many communities our women are some of our more they have a great deal of knowledge that is needed for our culture to survive um so like in sydney where my museum is the predominant fisher people were the fisher women and since fish were the main economy it would make sense that probably in the sydney region that um aboriginal women were the knowledge holders the Sydney culture was probably matriarchal. Mm -hmm. But if you look at our collection, it's predominantly men. And because of that, um, without even creating a narrative, by just going through our collection of the second largest Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander collection in the world, you would actually think that women weren't important to Aboriginal culture just by the fact that our, how our collection is done. And I, you know, I have theories to why that is. I basically believe that most anthropologists were men during our main collecting periods. Like the museums collected for a very long time, but the main periods were like the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Right. And what I, what I believe that's happened is most men have, um, either unconsciously or probably intentionally collected culture from other men. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of, and that sort of creates a narrative and reproduces sort of like Western patriarchy into Aboriginal culture, how people see Aboriginal culture. That's what I mean. And that's, that's so the colonial gaze is not just something that's imposed. It's sort of something that's reproduced by museums. Yeah, Nathan, one of the things that I found quite interesting, um, in a recent Museo Punks episode, Craig Middleton and Nikki Sullivan spoke to me about the kink or knowledge industries need queering manifesto, and you wrote a response to this. Mm. And in your response, you described how colonisation has stolen the ability for First Nation people to define themselves, and it's imposed new identities upon them. And it feels like some of what you're talking about, such as the bringing together of all of the shields without exploring their nuance, or, you know, heavily um, sort of male-focused collections would be part of this. But I'd be interested to hear you speak a little bit more about um, sort of the definition of identity and how that's expressed in our collections. So, yeah, um, even with... I'm working on this upcoming exhibition for 2020, and part of that, one of the things I actually wanted to explore was the idea that... Um, because 2020 is the 250th anniversary of James Cook coming to the east coast of Australia. Yeah. And so for this exhibition, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, and it's not really it's not really what happened in 1770. It happened previous to this, but 1770 is a big cultural marker of when for the First Nations people of Australia, when we became Aboriginal. We were not Aboriginal before that. We were Radri. We were, um, you know... We were the sons and daughters of our ancestors. Um, we were connected to our clans and our families. But um, during 1770 and a lot after 1770, we became Aboriginal and that had a meaning to it. We became native. We became savage. Mm. Um, and museums have really helped with that, um, proliferated that. Like yeah. um, one of the um, first things I ever did when I started at the Australian Museum is I actually looked at the Australian Museum magazine. Um, it was an old publication and um, they digitized old copies and I wanted to, because I was starting to work there, I wanted to see what previously was written about us at the museum. And I went through the magazine from the 1920s to the 1960s and I started a spreadsheet where I basically um, catalogued all um, 
sort of adjectives used. And there was things like, you know, it's it's unsurprising, but still sort of horrific to see. But there's, you know, adjectives like primitive, savage. Um, Aboriginal men have the mind of children. And the Australian Museum magazine, um, even though it was a general publication, it was still considered like a scientific publication. It was written by the experts at the time. Yeah. So um, when that was um, being um, going out to the general public, that's what people thought about Aboriginal people. So it just it disseminated this information to the general public. So when there's um, things like the Stolen Generations, which was um, I think similar things happened in um, Canada and America, where basically Aboriginal children were taken from their families. If and it's caused a lot of you know trauma um, and a lot of like cultural destruction, um, but when that's happening and you're hearing about that, but then you're also reading that Aboriginal men have the mind of children, you probably don't think it's a bad idea. The, these other policies that are happening external from like the museum, external from Aboriginal culture. So that's the sort of power that sort of museums have in, sh- in almost shaping identity. And that's, again, that's why I kind of want to do what I do is have, have, have us to ability to self-identify what, being a First Nations person means, um, what our culture represents and who we are. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are working in museums and other cultural institutions, these conversations about decolonisation can be pretty abstracted and intellectual. Um, I think they are distanced from the stakes in a lot of ways, including that pain and that trauma that you've just mentioned. Can you tell us what you see the stakes are of decolonization why does it matter that institutions not just superficially deal with this but actually really significantly deal with these issues and the and this pain and this trauma um well firstly like i always think it's good for acknowledgement like for a lot of like uncles and aunties and first nations communities the um the horrible history that's happened and still continues to happen is often unacknowledged like and that's uh, that can lead to sort of like a double trauma or like you know the term that we sort of use a lot now like gaslighting happens on this broad scale where you basically live something and then history books museums don't speak about it or act like what you experienced didn't happen so museums do have a role in playing in that but i also believe um, museums have a role in sort of stopping, like one of my biggest beliefs is, um, last year, um, the New South Wales government, um, did this, uh, policy. It was basically, it's called the New South Wales Adoption Act and it negatively affects First Nations families more than other families. And basically the act says, if you're in foster care for more than two years, you can be, um, adopted by a foster parents without parental consent and a lot of first nations people wow. yeah a lot of first nations people who you know have been victims of the stolen generations um previously um have said that um you know this will create another stolen generations um aboriginal children getting taken away from their families without their families yeah. knowing where they are and when that when that started happening i was thinking about that you know, at my museum, at the at many big libraries and museums, we have you know a lot of dedications or plaques that have come up recently that you know acknowledge the stolen generations. And but when this came out, I was like, what are we going to do? What are we doing now? Like, oh, as a museum, are we just going to wait 
30 years, 50 years in the future and do another plaque to talk about this act. I think like museums, we have a role not just to document bad history, but we should try to work, use history to prevent bad history from happening again. Um, and by that, we need to tell the true history, but we need to connect it back to today. So when I'm doing tours around things like the Stolen Generations, I was talking about the New South Wales Protection Act. And this, uh, this teenage girl um, basically said, oh, well, that, but isn't that good? Like these children get to go to these adopted foster homes. And I was like, you, but if you look at the terminology used with the New South Wales Adoption Act and you look at the terminology used for the Aborigines Protection Act, which was what created the Stolen Generations mostly, they're very similar languages. So we need to connect that history to the present mm -hmm. and we need to prevent bad history from happening as well. Like, um, that's what I truly believe. And they are, there are real stakes. Um, and again, we even with representation and uh, history, um, there was a study about, I think it's about five or six years ago, and I don't know if the statistics have changed, but one in five Australians um, does not meet a First Nations person, or they say they've never met a First Nations huh. person. So that's 20% of the Australian population that's never met an Aboriginal person. So things like the media and places like the Australian Museum is actually how they come to know Aboriginal people. So there's a lot of responsibility in that. And that's a responsibility that places like the museum and other big museums and um, libraries, archives need to really consider um, because it can have negative effects on people. Like um, if, again, like you hear this New South Wales Adoption Act and you don't have a you don't, really you believe sort of like stereotypes that have been proliferated throughout the years, then you're not going to be as justifiably angry or, you know, you're not going to want to fight it as much. So I think museums right. do have a role to play in sort of um, contemporary history. So this idea of First Nations communities being exploited by cultural institutions or, or treated essentially as like fodder for them to tell the stories that they want to tell um, is a real problem, and it's it's understandable if there's not a lot of trust in museums and memory institutions among First Nations people these days, based on the history. So, how do you think museums would need to change in order to be worthy of that kind of trust? And I'm particularly thinking about um, structural changes, like how would museums look different if they were going to actually ensure that this kind of work is more than just superficial or you know icing on the cake? How do, how do you how do you see the field needing to change in order to really do substantive work around this? Yeah, it's interesting question. Like it's an interesting time. Like I do feel there's a lot of change in museums. Um, there is. Um, Museums, libraries, and archives um, in Australia are pretty, like, it's very interesting. It's like a, they're all organizations that are filled with people that are pretty progressive, but as a field and as institutions, they're very conservative. It's a very weird dichotomy. And there's, yeah. there's, pe there's people that are very interested in helping to change, but it's very hard because a lot of, um, it's similar to like, say how whiteness operates in more society broadly. It's sort of lots of colonial structures in museums and archives are so embedded and so part of the foundation of um, these institutions that they're, they're hard to critique or challenge be almost because they seem like the natural way that these organizations work. Um, I think it's, it's, 
hard to say because like I will think about this all the time about how do we actually decolonize a museum or how do we actually indigenize a museum and we take a lot of these small steps like um you know with um our latest uh there's an exhibition that we did at the Australian Museum called Man which means fisherwoman it's about seeing the fisherwomen and that was created with the elders and, you know, it has things that, you know, a lot of people think is sort of decolonizing, like it preferences First Nations languages first. It um, will do things like uh, we've um, made the sections in it that basically you can only understand if you're a Sydney fisherwoman or have some knowledge of that. So we've actually made things not for general audiences, but basically for completely for First Nations audiences, but you could still sort of experience it. But at the same time, it's still in the museum and the museum is this great sort of sandstone building in the middle of the city that's geographically hard to get to. Well, it's not geographically hard to get to. It's in the middle of the city. It's got, you know, great public transport, but it's only accessible for people who live near Sydney. So, and there's also just the, and sandstone buildings and big colonial buildings were designed almost to, to keep um, First Nations people out of them. So yeah. um, so there is that sort of thing where it's um, – where even just being inside that building is very – can be sometimes traumatic for First Nations people or they just do not feel welcome. Like um, one of these um, – a guy, um, Gumore man, um, Peter White, he's been working at museums for like 30 years and I remember him telling me a story about when he worked at this museum in Canberra and they hired another elder to – um, from Ngunnawal country to do the, cause that's Canberra country, asked him to do a welcome to country. So, you know, he, it was a big event. So he did the welcome to country, which is, or, you know, which is a common sort of protocol that happens in Australia. So he welcomed all the guests to the museum and he welcomed them to Ngunnawal country. And then afterwards, Peter goes, Oh, thank you for that. Um, but I want to ask you something. Do you, um, how do you feel in this space? after you welcome me, he's like, it's really interesting trying to welcome these people to country when I don't actually feel welcome in this museum. And I think that the, it's hard to sort of change that. Um, and I'm still sort of working through how we can, I think, um, but we do need to sort of flip a lot of the um, practices that we do on the head. Um, and we're just sort of taking small steps now where we basically, I know a lot of people are working in the space of co-collaboration or co-curation. And that's mm -hmm. sort of what, that's sort of what we've been working on mostly. Um, the idea that we won't have really curators. And even though we're most of the people who curate first Nations stuff at the Australian museum now are first nations people themselves. We do know our role is to basically facilitate community. So our role is basically to make community's vision, um, be what it make the museum as much as community wants to desire and fulfill community needs. Um, and that's something we've been trying to do. And, and, you know, so it's not really what the museum wants and then asking community if they're on board for this, but asking community, what would they need? And if the museum can actually help with that. So, um, and then also at the same time, it's sort of, um, especially for the Australian Museum because it's a really large museum. Some parts of it I actually believe it would also be good if the Australian Museum just got out of the way. Like some stories don't belong at the Australian Museum, but the Australian Museum could help First Nations people tell those stories elsewhere. So, you know, there's a lot of like um, community museums uh, that are run by First Nations people in sort of regional or remote Australia. I think it would be better if the Australian Museum, you know, um, 
we use some of the um, the things that we have or the skills that we have to better empower those organizations. And I think if we do, we can create established relationships that will be um, beneficial in the future. But at the same time, we shouldn't always focus on things that are beneficial just for the Australian Museum. We've, we have to acknowledge our role in um, some, you know, cultural damage that we've done as the Australian Museum and as big, and not just the Australian Museum, big museum archives and libraries, like historic libraries. We need to, um, and like the, the role that we're playing um, Callum Dixon, Anawan man says this, where he's basically like the role museums play should not be a role of like, you know, paternalism or like, or like even thinking of like things that we do, like we shouldn't be, you know, we're not handing out grants to these community organizations. We're actually, that's, we're actually being, we actually should do these things as part of our reparations. Like we've taken so much just for reparations sake, we should actually be empowering communities. Absolutely, Nathan. I want to, before you were talking about when you started at the Australian Museum and you created the spreadsheet of looking at how First Nations people had been represented by the museum magazine, and I thought that was a really powerful form of critique and gave you kind of a, a really good mechanism for better understanding some of the impact of the work that museums have already done. Are there other tactics like that using critique as a kind of mechanism or or a way to help structure some of these conversations as well? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we do at the Australian Museum too is we run these tours called Indigi Hacks. Um, we're, uh, and basically those tours were, it's basically cr- um, critiquing the museum itself. So we, we sort of look at colonial biases. Like one of the things we do is like uh, they were sort of um, done by me, my colleague, um, Bunjalung woman, Courtney Marsh and Wawan curator, Laura McBride. And we sort of just look through the museum, um, in a few different spaces and just try to get people to be more critical of the, mu- the museums, um, how things are represented in the museum. So we'll do things like, um, there's one bit, there's a wallaby trap on display, a first nations wallaby trap. And we ask people, well, what do you think it is? And they'll say, oh, I don't know, sometimes they might guess a wallaby trap. And we ask them, um, can you tell us what it, how, how it works? How does it actually catch wallabies? And they'll go, um, usually they don't get it. And we say, oh, well, you should read the label and find out. And when they do, they realize they can't because the label actually doesn't tell them how the wallaby trap catches wallabies. And we sort of, cause it's in, it's actually in this cabinet full of just um, about 12 first nations objects. And basically none of them actually have full context in what they actually are, what they actually mean. And so we sort of do this sort of thing where they're basically, um, because a lot of times, you know, um, museums, um, will say that we hold First Nations culture, especially, you know, internationally or, or nationally because we are sites where everyone could learn from these cultures. But if these cultures on, if, if mm-hmm. cultures are on display like that, then people don't actually get much out of them. Um, so they're actually in, are not a sort of a cultural sharing spot because the way that their cult, our cultures are being displayed is actually quite shallow. 
Um, so we started doing those tours and we, you know, we'll ask them, we'll go into one of the galleries and ask them to find objects that are related to women's culture. And we know that it's actually in, like, in, a, in this, in this one exhibition where there's about, you know, 200 things, um, 200 cultural objects and several, like, you know, taxidermy and stuff that uh, there's probably only six that relate to women. So we know that's a trick. So when we ask them to go find stuff, we can sort of make them see that. Um, Cause that's one of the things is like, it's really hard um, to not to not see what's not there. It's really hard to question what's not there. Whose voice is not there. Whose voice is not being privileged. Um, and sort of this sort of, um, before I worked at the Australian museum, I worked at the state library of New South Wales and um this sort of, when I was really young, I started there when I was 20. And when I was uh, pretty sure, when, pretty early on when I started, um, we had this Arnie come in to look at missionary records um, because we uh, we held some missionary records. And she was looking at mi- missionary records of herself. And the record said that she broke her arm. And she's like, I never broke my arm. I was there. Like, how could this missionary write that? this happens and it really changed my mind like I always knew like you know the ideas like you know my dad would always say like oh the history you get taught is like white fella history but that day really cemented to me because I know that historians go to the archives and that's what they use to write history yeah and this Arnie's this Arnie's voice was not part of that history even though she was part of it through sort of you know missionary surveillance so uh, it really got me thinking like whose voice is missing from history and whose voice do we privilege? And so we do do a few things. Um, the Indigiac tours are our biggest one that we sort of do where we sort of, and I do a tour called truth and treaty where I examine the idea of truth. And I, you know, I tell that story about the museum magazine, but I also tell, you know, like another one when I first started the museum was just, um, I was wearing my museum shirt and walking through the um, museum. There was a big spiders exhibition on and this lady came up to me and goes, Oh, can you tell me how to get rid of funnel web spiders? And I was like, well, that's not my expertise. I'm sorry. I don't know. And another man came up and was like, I'll tell you how to get rid of funnel web spiders. And before he could finish his sentence, she put his hand, her hand in front of his face and basically said, sorry, I'm talking to the expert pointing to me. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not an expert. I, I don't know anything about spiders. I can't confirm or deny what he's saying, but I don't know anything. And huh. it did make me realize when I'm wearing the museum shirt, I become an expert. And when we write things on the museum wall, they become fact. So there is that big responsibility and there's a very big power in that. And so we just, I'm just trying to be at my best to be mindful of that, but also trying to get other people within the museum to be mindful of that, but, and to get the general public to question that. Um, and I don't want people to sort of wholesale disregard museums and disregard archives, but just to be critical of what they hear, because it also happens in, so say the media. So if you can get the sort of critical thing of like, who's saying what and possibly who, and if there's a vested interest in this, um, maybe you can just sort of challenge um, some narratives that are written by people that are different to you, like like First Nations people. It's also interesting hearing you talk about um, expertise, because you know, in a blog post you've written on cultural change within institutions, you mentioned treating lived expertise as expertise, and I think museums don't necessarily 
do this and they certainly don't necessarily compensate this that whether we're talking about people on staff or not lived experience experts and knowledge holders often don't receive the same level of compensation that other kinds of experts do such as academic experts i'm sure that has an impact on power relationships and that's part of this discussion this structural change discussion would better acknowledgement of and compensation for lived experience expertise help place more value on that expertise Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, Yeah, we have, you know, there's so many, there's so much knowledge that exists outside of academia and outside of museums, and it does have to be acknowledged. It does have to be valued. And I think, you know, um, either through financial, like that's one of the things that's sort of, um, when you bring First Nations people in to help tell their stories, but we don't financially... um, show that we value those stories, we are continuing this sort of reproduction of um, disvaluing um, um, First Nations knowledge. Um, and we do do this thing too where we just sort of, um, and museums are a part of it as sort of, you know, sort of, you know, being academic adjacent, especially like natural history museums, um, where basically if it's not published in a peer-reviewed journal, if it's not part of academia, it's not legitimate. And yeah. I think um, I think yeah we need to work outside those paradigms and really acknowledge that there is knowledge outside of these spaces and especially lived experience like this is one of the things um, I don't think a lot of people understand and uh, well not I mean like I think a lot of people understand in different um, situations but you know when you live as a First Nations person you have an understanding of not just First Nations culture but also almost even a better understanding of white culture than a lot of white people because you need to sort of navigate that that field to sort of mm-hmm. for your own survival so when we when we're saying things sometimes like some people act as if we're um, being oversensitive or that we're not really understanding the situation, but we're understanding it from this perspective. And it's really based on our lived experience, which is experience. Like it's, and, and sometimes it's not even just our experiences. It's like experience passed down to us through generations. So it's not just, um, you know, I'm 31. It's not just like 30 years of my experience. It's my um, 80 year old dad's experience too. So it's 120 years experience, you know, that's sort of um, that I'm sort of using to guide what I'm doing. And, um, you know, things that I'm suggesting is based on these experiences. So I think a lot of times people will um, negate it because it's not, you know, it doesn't come, it's not being produced in sort of these academic formats or it's not, um, it's not existing within academia. And I think, you know, a lot of first nations people and a lot of, you know, people from, um, uh, people of color and, um, people from different, um, backgrounds that are considered marginalized sort of get frustrated with, um, because I even think, um, Ken Kyle White, um, native American academic basically published a paper where he, he was almost finding it impossible to write anything because a lot of, um, in academia because a lot of academics were forcing him basically to reference um, basically previous white anthropologists, which basically feeds into their power dynamics and also feeds into the idea of what is legitimate and what isn't. Yeah, so Nathan, um, earlier you talked about the example of 
cataloging shields embedding bias just in the act of cataloging them and making them a thing shields um, and this idea that museums collections management systems or any kind of archival system may have built-in limitations for dealing with different knowledge systems could be kind of a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around since we've we've been taught largely that these kinds of systems they're they're scientific they're they're uncontroversial this is just the facts um, can you talk a little bit more about um, who gets to own the conversation around how archives archive and and where where do you see this conversation happening if we're if we're going to do things differently um how is that going to happen yeah i think um there's lots of things where you can sort of uh change processes but it's first of all just acknowledging that just because a thing's a process and you're following a process does not make it objective i think um a lot of cataloging systems are created with the idea that they actually take the person out of the equation. You just follow the formula and therefore it's objective. But like, if you even look at like, um, the Dewey decibel system, the most used library catalog system in the world till just recently, I think it's being surpassed a little bit. Um, until like probably about five years ago, um, Aboriginal creation stories, went under the number, I think, 398.20994, which is Australian Myths and Legends, um, which is, you know, it's. but for a lot of First Nations people, our creation stories are our spirituality. They're our religion. Uh, you know, a lot of First Nations people might not call it religion, but it is basically our belief system. And for a long time, that went into the Dewey Decibel system under myths and legends, whereas, like, you know, um, Christian creation stories do not go under sort of Christian myths and legends. So even that right. sort of creates, like, a system where um, Aboriginal knowledge is undervalued. But that's basically through a system created so you can be more objective. Even, even now that we've moved into sort of the 200s, into the religion section, Still, the Dewey Decibel system um, from 200 to 299 is all about religion. And so, but 200 to 290, I think, is all about Christianity. And all other religions go from 290 to 299. We all fit in there. Um, so you can see just in this system, it just, it just reproduces what's considered important and um, replicates that. So doesn't just fit in sort of like um, like catalog systems do not just exist inside a vacuum. They're based on existing power dynamics. So um, there is a system called Mokatu. Um, uh, I think it comes from Washington State University. Yeah. And um, it's pretty cool um, from what I've seen in systems like Ariitcha where they basically allow, you know, traditional cataloging, usually things like Dublin Core sort of settings, um, but they allow things like community narratives, um, which I think is really cool. Uh, Mokatu allows community to basically respond to the record or to the object, and you can respond either through video, audio, or free text. 
and you can respond in any way you want. So you could respond in ways like, uh, my grandfather used to make these shields down by the river, or you could respond what the designs on the shield meant. Or if, um, if there is a misinterpretation in anthropological records about the shield, you could correct them. And the cool thing about, um, community narratives is, um, you usually give the, um, with Mokatu and I think with Ariacha as well, you sort of give the login to the community themselves and then they control who can add stuff and who can see it. So they can have stuff that's elders only, or they can have stuff that's general public, or they can have stuff that's men's or women's business. So they can sort of control who can see what information and what cultural objects or um, records about cultural information. Um, but it also, but I do, I'm just pretty excited about the idea of a community narrative. Like you can have a writer apply to um, what has been previously written about you or um, written about your culture. And, and the cool thing about things like, um, and I think of Mokotu, you can have, um, uh, almost an ever, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I know you can have multiple community narratives. So a space like that, where you could have, even if the community within themselves disagree about certain aspects, you could have both of them on display, which can at least create a pluralization. So we're not just yeah. talking from the voice of God where, um, we're providing the information that we have. And some people can see other information that contradicts that. And it can at least give them an idea of um, the different voices out there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Nathan, Ed and I are such big fans of your work and your blog and your writing. Yep. If our listeners want to find out more, if they want to follow the work that you're doing and get in contact with you, where can they do so? Um, so yeah, I run a blog called the archival decolonist. Um, so you can Google that it's, uh, archival normally, but I spelled decolonist in sort of like the Australian way. So D E C O L I N I S T. And also I'm on Twitter at say what Nathan. That's fantastic. Cool. And we will drop those, uh, links in the show notes as well so that anyone can follow up. Nathan. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Yes, thank you very much, Nathan. Mandan Guru, thank you for having me. Thank you to both Samaya and Nathan for sharing your work and your thoughts with us about these challenging topics. Yeah, I've been a big fan of Nathan's blog for a while, so it was really great to finally talk in person. And Sumeya's willingness to work so publicly to surface important issues has been really powerfully inspiring for me. Yeah, speaking truth to power is never easy, but it's always important. And I think the interview with Sumeya made it visible that there is a cost and that people are taking personal risks when they take on this kind of important, meaningful work to make our sector better. I've been teaching work that both Samaya and Nathan have done in my museum studies courses for the past few years, and I really appreciated the opportunity to unpack their work with them rather than me trying to interpret their intent and their meaning. It was honestly a bit of a fangirl episode for me. <laughs> yeah, me too. It was, it was a little embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so that does it for this episode of Museo Punks. We'd love to hear from you about the topics that you're interested in. What are the exciting things that have been happening for you in the sector? You can connect with us on Twitter at Museo Punks. Next time, 
we want to dig into the International Council of Museums' attempt to redefine what a museum is, check out their draft text. Museums are democratizing, inclusive, and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue about the pasts and the futures. Acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present, they hold artifacts and specimens in trust for society, safeguard diverse memories for future generations, and guarantee equal rights and equal access to heritage for all people. Museums are not-for-profit. They are participatory and transparent and work in active partnership with and for diverse communities to collect, preserve, research, interpret, exhibit and enhance understandings of the world, aiming to contribute to human dignity and social justice, global equality and planetary well-being. By the time this episode drops, a vote will have been taken to see whether that is indeed how we're defining what a museum is. So next episode, we'll try and follow up and see how the discussions went. We've popped links to much of what we spoke about today in the show notes, which you can find at museopunks.org, along with transcripts of this and all our past episodes. Museopunks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. Oh, and Spotify. You can find us there now, too. Catch you next time. Bye. Oh, my God.